0: Let's practice that as a congregation. Let our amen be unified. Amen. amen. There we go. There we go. Thank you for remaining standing. And if you would, take up your copy of God's holy word in your hand and open there with me to Philippians chapter 1. We'll pick up where we left off last time preaching through this wonderful letter of joy, wonderful exhortation to unity, focused on Christ our Lord. The message this morning is living, dying, and suffering for Christ. The text will come from Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 30. I'm going to back up just one verse and get a bit of a running start. Hear now the word of the Lord. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice for I know that this will turn out for me deliverance through your prayers and for the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed but with all boldness as always so now also Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death for to me to live is Christ And to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray, Our gracious Father in heaven, as we come now to the preaching of your word and to considering these familiar words from the Apostle Paul, written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the beloved saints at Philippi, we ask that over the next few minutes that you would do what only your spirit can, and that is to open our understanding and to grant us the great privilege of hearing from our great God. Show us what you would have us to see in Paul's example, and how we are to bring application to our lives by following his example. Help us to take heed to his exhortation as though hearing for the first time, convicting us where we fall short, ensuring us up in Christ where we are weak. This we pray with hope and confidence in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. As we come now to the conclusion of chapter one here in Paul's letter to the Philippians, I'd like to provide just to take a moment here and provide a brief overview of where we've been. We have considered the apostles' greeting, which was characterized by thanksgiving and joy and prayer for the saints there. In that greeting, he also bolstered their faith and their assurance in the Lord while writing to them that he is confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, a profound truth of the sovereignty of God in our lives. We have also seen that he has given them a brief update of his present circumstances, being imprisoned in Rome, yet gladly reporting that his chains have turned out to be an opportunity for the advance of the gospel, both through him and through those who were emboldened by his example. And he reports to them that even though the gospel is being preached by some men out of envy or strife, that he is able to rejoice because Christ is preached. That's the goal. That's the chief aim of the whole of his life, preaching Christ. Defending the gospel against gainsayers. Proclaiming good news to all who would hear in the hope that some would be saved. And then, here at the very end of verse 18, Paul concludes his glad report that Christ is preached, writing, In this I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. He turns from the present, I rejoice, to the future, I will rejoice. And that brings us up to our text for today. In verses 19 through 26, Paul provides the answer for why he can say confidently, I will rejoice, which can be summarized with the first here of only two propositions I would like for us to consider this morning. And the first proposition this morning is that you are not truly ready to live until you are ready to die. You are not truly ready to live until you are fully ready to die. Amen. So that's the question. That's the question for each one of us here this morning. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to meet your Maker to face eternity? Are you ready to be ushered into the holy presence of Almighty God? and to stand in the sure confidence that Christ Jesus is the Lord of your life. Knowing, knowing with full assurance that He is your advocate with the Father, and in Him you have redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of your sins. Are you ready? Until this is true for you, you are not truly ready to live because you are not fully ready to die. The Apostle Paul was absolutely ready. In verses 19 and 20 we read, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether in life or by death. Paul knows, he fully expects and hopes that there will be no shame in his life. Indeed, he is filled with all boldness, knowing that Christ will be magnified in his body, whether he lives or whether it is his time has come now to face death. But how can Paul be so confident? How is he so ready to face death or even persevere through the trials of life? The answer lies in the fact that he had a deep certainty in the Lord's sovereign purposes for his life. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, for my salvation. Paul knows that his life is held in the hands of the sovereign God. It is this conviction and the absolute authority of God over all of life and even death, that gives him great joy and certainty. He would be filled with fear if he did not trust in this unshakable truth. He would have no joy if he thought that his circumstances were governed by mere chance. And it is the Holy Spirit who provides the power and peace that Paul needs to remain steadfast in this difficult time and his imprisonment so that he can live with earnest expectation and hope, he has absolute confidence that God will cause all things to work together for God's glory and His good. And so he considers his future, and he is confident that he will rejoice. Even amid these difficulties, Paul has resounding confidence that he will not be put to shame in anything He knows he will stand trial before Caesar and be examined about his faith in Christ. And by God's grace, he will be made strong and confident in that hour. That the Holy Spirit will give him utterance, will provide the words and the clarity that he needs to speak before Caesar. But Paul does not see himself is being on his own in this fight to persevere in the faith. The Philippians played a key role through their prayers. And isn't it notable how often Paul asked the church to pray for his witness elsewhere? Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, he writes to the church at Ephesus. Pray for us that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned in Colossians. He is imprisoned because he preached Christ and repeatedly asked for prayer, not for release, not for relief from his circumstances, but for courage and for opportunity to continue to testify to Christ. After all, what Paul most longs for is that Christ will even now, as always, be magnified in my body. Everything is about the magnification and exaltation of Christ. Every trial is seen through the lens of advancing the name of Christ. Life and death are both opportunities to serve that one great end Paul then continues by making one of the most memorable and dramatic statements ever to come from his pen. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. As Stephen Lawson reflects on verse 21, he writes this, This strong pronouncement reveals the heartbeat that should be pulsating in every Christian. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whether anyone else lives for Christ, Paul asserts he will. In other words, Paul says, regardless of what my friends or foes are doing, I will live for Christ. To live for Christ is not referring to a mere existence. Not everyone alive actually lives. Rather, he means to live life as God intended him to live, namely for Christ Christ. He is resolved to live with his single, this single purpose for Christ end quote." And so we have here one of the most well-known verses from this epistle. And meditating upon this verse, we easily see the contrast, the contrast of life and death in perfect harmony sharing the same end. It is almost as if this is a mission statement for the apostle to live as Christ to die is gain. Another commentator observes this of Paul's perspective. For me to live is Christ. The preaching of Christ, the business of my life. The presence of Christ, the cheer of my life. The image of Christ, the crown of my life. The spirit of Christ, the life of my life. The love of Christ, the power of my life. The will of Christ, the law of my life, and the glory of Christ, the end of my life. Christ was the absorbing element of his life. If he traveled, it was on Christ's errand. If he suffered, it was in Christ's service. When he spoke, his theme was Christ, and when he wrote, Christ filled his letters." End quote. And then Paul continues to expound on this theme in verses 22 through 26, writing, But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Paul is awaiting his trial and possible death, yet he is unwavering in his single-minded devotion to Christ. With his day in court before him, the outcome is unknown, yet Paul makes this bold confession of faith. His whole life is consumed with Christ. Everything in his life is bound up in Christ. His whole life, his whole everything, the passionate pursuit of his whole being is to know and to glorify Christ. The sum and substance of his present state is confined in Christ every moment, of every day, is lived for Christ. And the truth is, this is what it means to be a Christian. It involves living primarily and preeminently for Christ. Everything else in life is secondary. The late John Stott put it like this, Take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. There is practically nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity. All else is circumference. But we see here that living for Christ creates a dilemma within Paul. He is hard-pressed between living for Christ on the one hand and dying to depart and be with Christ on the other. As he prepares to stand trial, he acknowledges Caesar may not spare his life and so he sensed that he is filled with glad anticipation about seeing the Lord face to face. But if he is acquitted and released, which he has confidence in, he will resume his ministry for Christ. This regained freedom will give him an extended opportunity to preach the gospel and to build up and to equip the church. And that means more people hearing the message of Christ, more people being saved, More churches being planted, more believers being matured, more young men like Timothy being trained up to preach the word and shepherd the flock. If Paul's life is spared, there will be more spiritual fruit produced that will glorify God. In light of this dilemma, Paul admits I don't know which I will choose. However, the choice is not really for Paul to make, is it? The outcome of the trial rests in the hands of Caesar, but the ultimate outcome is in the Lord's hand, who sovereignly controls Caesar's decision. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And we face this same dilemma whenever we see a loved one face death, don't we? Have you been there? We are often pulled in these two opposite directions. We want God to extend their life and for them to remain with us, that we may enjoy their company and that our love in this life would continue, yet eventually their condition deteriorates and it gets to the place where it is better for them to be absent from this body of pain and to be present with the Lord And so we sensed this dilemma. I knew this dilemma firsthand through my brother's battle with cancer. Several of you are familiar with this story. My brother Craig and I had drawn particularly close to one another in the years and months just before his diagnosis. And it was a great joy, a great joy for me to be able to Meet with him for lunch, usually in his office at Brentwood Baptist, and to discuss the things of the Lord. He was growing in his faith and there was a fresh excitement in his spirit. Near the end, and the very last time we had lunch together, he assured me and he looked me right in the eye and he said, I'm not afraid to die. And these were sweet words to hear. He knew that the battle was almost over. And although he was relatively young and he had a lovely wife and three wonderful sons, the time had come for him to look forward to meeting Christ, knowing with confident assurance that to die would be gain. So I ask again are you ready? To die? Are you ready to meet Christ? To face eternity? Are you ready to be ushered into, into the holy presence of Almighty God? Please know that you are not truly ready to live, whether today or tomorrow or however many days you may have left, until you are fully ready to die. And the second proposition this morning is that you need to know that the free gift of the gospel comes with a high price. Yes, the free gift of the gospel comes with a high price. The gospel is good, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, and it is the greatest news that this world has ever heard. It is the glad tidings that this fallen, sin-soaked, human race may find salvation from the wrath of God through the sinless life and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. It is the news that Jesus lived the perfect life that we could never live, and in so doing he was qualified as the perfect and final sacrifice. Thus he purchased our pardon from sin by death upon the cross through the shedding of his blood and the giving of his life and by being raised up on the third day. By this sin-bearing substitutionary act, Jesus redeemed all those whom he came to save. And this forgiveness of sin is a gift. It is a gift that is received by faith alone apart from any good works. It is a gift given, not a reward earned. For those who have received this gospel, though, we need to know that it always comes at a price. When anyone believes in Jesus Christ and receives His righteousness and the forgiveness of sin, this act of saving faith requires a deep soul-searching and a radical self-denial. This step of faith necessitates a supreme commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. For if He is not Lord of all, He is not Lord at all in your life. For those who embrace the gospel, it will cost and it may cost them everything. It requires a willingness to suffer the opposition of Satan and the persecution of the world. Every true believer must be willing to endure reproach, ridicule, and rejection. A follower of Christ must recognize that all they have belongs to their master. You must be willing to relinquish your earthly popularity your earthly pleasures and possessions a disciple must be willing to receive slander shame and suffering for the sake of the gospel as one commentator observed this is the high cost of discipleship and its price is never marked down and paul begins this next paragraph letting the philippians know that they must live a life worthy of the gospel only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. That you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. The Philippians are here exhorted to live consistently With the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm. In other words, Paul, whether present with them in person or under house arrest in Rome, he is calling them to live in the same manner of life, a life worthy of the gospel. Duplicity of life is not an option. And neither is living out of step with the Word of God. This principle is applicable to every believer today. No matter who is with us or who is able to witness our actions or hear our words, we must maintain the same devotion to God in consistent obedience to His Word. That's what we are called to. Whether you find yourself in the midst of sweet Christian fellowship or removed from all watching eyes, You must keep the commandments of the Lord with equal resolution. Are you often alone? Isolated from your brothers or sisters in Christ and from your parents? Are you occasionally or even frequently away on business? Are you removed from the reach or contact of a spiritual mentor? Are you providentially hindered from regular Christian fellowship? What? Ever your situation, an absence from others must never be allowed to be an excuse for becoming spiritually, spiritually lax toward keeping the Word of God. After all, the one whose verdict truly matters, truly matters most, is never absent. So when we do find ourselves alone or isolated, we must consciously live That is, before the face of God. The Lord is always with us in every place, 24-7, 365. Through the Holy Spirit, He lives inside of us with the full sufficiency of His grace. Even when we are separated from family or friends, and though we are surrounded with all manner of temptation, we are divinely empowered by His Spirit to live in accordance with His revealed Word. It matters. It matters to God how we live our lives. And know this, grace doesn't diminish our responsibility to keep the moral requirements of God's Word. Grace doesn't lower the standard. Rather, grace enables us to meet the standard. Grace empowers us to fulfill what God requires. Grace gives us strength when we need to flee temptation. And grace gives us the desire to truly repent of our sins. Paul also exhorts the Philippians to stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And here we see a military term that pictures a soldier holding his position on the front lines of battle. If the soldier neglects his post, if he fails to hold the line, He gives the enemy opportunity to secure an advantage. Likewise, the believer must stand fast in the face of spiritual opposition because the enemies of God look for the weakest soldier in his army. If the foes of God can overwhelm the weakest soldier, it becomes an entry point to penetrate the church and to bring about devastating results, to penetrate the family and bring about devastating results to penetrate your very soul and bring about devastating results. Both individually and corporately, Paul exhorts the Philippians to not be moved away from their allegiance to the gospel. They must stand firm in the faith. They must be anchored in the truth of the apostles' doctrine. And this requires effort. It requires striving. When confronted by error and sin, they must not be swayed or backed down. When persecuted and oppressed, they must not turn and run from their Christian witness. And in the darkness of spiritual warfare, they must remain immovable in the gospel. As the Philippians stand together, they must also not be terrified by their adversaries, They must stand firm together with oneness of heart, interlocking arms with one another, posted as one man in their stance for the gospel, not fearing the onslaught. Fear begats weakness, and any weakness in the line is an opportunity for the enemy. And Paul reveals that as the church stands strong and unified in the faith, in the face of opposition, this stance that they take sends a twofold message. To the false teachers and those who follow them, it was proof of perdition, a sign of destruction. As Paul had written to the Galatian church, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said for said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received, let him be accursed. Those who preach another gospel are to be damned because their false gospel, in preaching their false gospel, they are leading people to damnation. But to those contending for the truth, striving for the faith of the gospel, standing strong and unified in the faith is a proof. Of salvation. This means that the spiritual adversity that the Philippians are facing in their fight for the faith is a confirming proof or a sign that they are genuinely converted to Christ. A lack of spiritual oppression, on the other hand, may be an indicator of a lack of conversion, of not truly being in Christ. If they were not truly converted, they would likely yield or collapse instead of standing firm. Likewise, their opposition to the adversaries of the gospel is a demonstration to the world of the truth of the gospel. Therefore, if they did not stand firm in the gospel against the false teaching, it would call into question the authenticity of their message of grace and the truth of the gospel. And in adding the final words at the end of verse 28, and that from God... Paul indicates that the destruction of those who reject the gospel is from God, just as salvation is also from God. As Paul continues, he teaches another cost associated with the free gift of the gospel, and that cost is suffering. Opposition to the truth is to be expected as a necessary part of our Christian walk. We don't like to hear that, but it is the truth. We will be persecuted in some measure for our faith. Verses 29 and 30. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now hear is in me. <clears throat> to all who are given saving faith, God also appoints them to suffer for His sake. These two gifts, salvation and suffering, are inseparably bound together. This suffering was for the sake of the gospel. All who receive the former also receive the latter. It's a package deal. All the believers in Philippi had been granted saving faith as well as the privilege of suffering for the gospel. And indeed, it is a grace given to be able to suffer for Christ's sake. As Paul wrote to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And as we read earlier in First Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. Suffering because of our salvation is to be expected and accepted. I know that growing up as a young man in this country, this was a hard truth to wrap my head around. But as you learn more about history, as you read about the martyrs, and perhaps become acquainted with today's voice of the Martyrs Project, your eyes are opened a little bit wider. What was unthinkable, at least for me in this country, to suffer for our faith as Christians has become a reality for many and a growing threat for all who claim the name of Christ Jesus. But we also suffer loss of relationships. Warm and cordial family relationships are often broken and grow cold when we take a stance for Christ in our lives. And then there are the sufferings that we are more familiar with, those pertaining to health or some bodily weakness. In all these sufferings, we are to form our understanding and our perspective of suffering based on what Christ has suffered for us and what he is accomplishing through our sufferings for his sake. Perhaps an illustration of this would be a helpful perspective, corrective for us all. In Bob Benson's book, See You at the House, he recounts the story of a friend who had a heart attack At first, it did not seem like the man would live as a result of this heart attack, but eventually his friend would recover, and so months later, Bob had the opportunity to ask him this question. Well, how did you like your heart attack? Scared me to death almost. Would you do it again? No. Would you recommend it? Definitely not. Does your life mean more to you now than it did before? Well, yes. You and Nell have always had a beautiful marriage, but are you closer now than you ever have been before? Yes. How about that new granddaughter? Yes. Did I show you her picture? Do you have a new compassion for people, a deeper understanding and a sympathy for them and their circumstances? Yes. Do you know the Lord in a deeper, richer fellowship than you ever had realized could be possible? Yes. So, how'd you like your heart attack? Well, I hope that illustration in no way trivializes the nature of suffering for Christ and for the gospel. But it does illustrate for us that God works in mysterious ways, even through the sufferings and trials in this life. We all acknowledge with sober and humble awareness the ultimate price that the martyrs played and continue to pay for Christ's sake. The free gift of the gospel does indeed come with a high price. For some, it costs their life. For others, it costs their livelihood or family relationships or privilege, and for others, the cost is slander, ridicule, and rejection. And Paul closes here, circling back to his own circumstances, but does so in a way that challenges the Philippians to follow his example. The conflict that Paul experienced during his time in Philippi continues to the present as he sits under house arrest in Rome because of his obedience to Christ. Their shared experience of suffering is yet one more example of their fellowship in the gospel. Paul wants the Philippians to evaluate their own suffering in light of his own example, which itself is modeled after the pattern of Christ himself. And so we remember Christ's words from John 15. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So perhaps we need to adjust our understanding of suffering in all its forms. For the Christians, suffering for the sake of Christ is a normative experience and to be expected. It is a part of the high price we pay for receiving the free gift of the gospel. And I close with the following observation from Calvin regarding suffering for Christ's sake. Oh, if this, persecu- this persuasion were effectually wrought in our minds, suffering, that is, that persecutions are to be reckoned among God's benefits, what progress would be made in the doctrine of piety? And yet, what is more certain than that it is the highest honor that is conferred upon us by divine grace, that we suffer for His name, either reproach or imprisonment or miseries or tortures or even death, for in that case He adorns us with His marks of distinction. But more will be found that will rather bid God retire with gifts of that nature than to embrace with alacrity the cross when it is presented to them. Alas, then, for our stupidity. Dear friends, let us not be stupid, but rather let us receive the grace of suffering with joy, knowing that the benefit we have in Christ far outweighs any cost we may have to bear for his sake let's pray our good and gracious father we offer to you our heartfelt thanksgiving for this word of encouragement even as we are overwhelmed by the love of christ bring application of these truths to our lives and sanctify us by the work of your holy spirit we pray If there are any here who are not fully ready to die in Christ, we pray that you would grant them new life so that they may begin to truly live and serve the risen and reigning Savior. And as you have saved us freely and completely by the gospel of Christ, make us ever more ready to pay the price, pay the cost of discipleship, obedience, and embrace the suffering that you have ordained and to do so with joy. This we ask for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of your kingdom. For we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.